Okay, it's the Stazapod. I got your questions. They are queued up. I'm going to answer them. Before we get into that, what do we need to talk about? Well, wanted to plug somebody really quick. Rob Ager, A-G-E-R, has joined Patreon. I just discovered his Patreon, but I've been a fan of Rob's work for many, many years. He is probably uh, on the forefront of film analysis. This guy does these really, really in-depth videos breaking down important films. Uh, I've been watching his, his sort of vids for, I mean, more than five years. His sort of comprehensive breakdown of the hidden themes in The Shining is legendary. Um, there was a cut that was several hours long at one point, and uh, I watched all of it, like, completely ensorcelled. Uh, his theories are a bit out there, but I think he makes very compelling arguments for uh, the subliminal messaging that's happening in a lot of films. So uh, if you like films, if you if you like Kubrick films in particular, Rob Ager on Patreon, really great guy to follow. He also has a very uh, sort of soothing voice and accent, so I like to put him on before I fall asleep. Um, and it, uh, it has the same effect as watching the original Solaris film. It just kind of lulls you into a deep sleep. I'm going to skip order a little bit today and go to a question that demands a little bit more time from Thomas Bucci. How safe is it for Glios makers to do homages? Was there ever a point where you guys had to stop and pull back or cancel an homage idea for fear of possible legal backlash from the rights holders? What's the cliff's edge for how close you can take an homage before it can be argued as copying slash intellectual theft? So this question has come up a bunch of times on Dostazapod, and people can go back to the entire back catalog and uh, scan through my previous thoughts. I believe these libraries should be available on most major podcasting platforms. Uh, but to answer this specifically, I, I want to make a distinction here. I don't speak for every Glios maker, and each of the makers are going to have completely different approaches to homages, and their uh, perception of the risk of doing an homage. So I'm going to lay out what my personal sort of instincts are for these things. They are by no means a monolithic uh, way of looking at it. Each maker is going to sort of have their own view of these things. So for me and my sort of uh, application of a love letter to a character or a theme or a brand from the past, um, I always am going A to C with the design, never A to B. So I am not going to leave things looking very much like the things they're referencing. There's always going to be some level of tweaks to it. Uh, I don't think that I've really done a one-to-one -one recreation of any characters. Uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, or your perception of these things may vary. But for me, I'm always sort of being inspired by something, and then using enough of a creative twist to end up with something new. So for any toy artist that is sort of going to do an homage, you should be making that calculation. How much are you changing or adding to this original form? These are things that, in a court of law, can help you prove points of uh, similarity, or, or better yet, disprove points of similarity. Every IP owner is going to have a different sort of policy for policing uh, artistic expression utilizing their marks, right? Whether it's people doing prints of their characters at Comic-Con, 
uh, artists doodling in their sketchbook and putting a photo up on Instagram. Every studio, every IP holder, they're going to have a different way of monitoring and policing this. Some of them are going to come down very hard on fan creations. Some of them are going to be much more permissive. There's no way to really predetermine what the reaction an IP holder might have to these things. So all of this is a calculated risk. But what a lot of people sort of imagine IP enforcement to be like may or may not come to reality. And, and that means a couple different things. So one is, do you get a cease and desist letter? Two is, do they take action beyond that? And three is, does your case end up in trial where you have to prove or disprove um, ownership of a mark or how you've differentiated your artwork from the original? A lot of these things may never happen, right? All those things may happen. You may end up in court uh, or in the discovery period, you may show how little you make as a toy maker off of these things. And the people looking to sue you might say, oh, there's no money in this at all. And they might drop it all together. Or in a worst case scenario, let's say you have a very vindictive IP holder, right? And they see people, they see artists reinterpreting their mark and making money off of it. They don't even have to sort of do a cease and desist. They don't even have to drag that person to court and sue them for damages. They can just fire off a bunch of legal letters. And those legal letters have to be read by a lawyer. So the artist is going to have to hire a lawyer to read all these letters. And it, effectively, they can chill out this artist and make them go bankrupt very quickly. So all of this is to say you don't know what ire you might evoke out there in the world. There are certain protections and leeways for artists and doing small batches of things. Uh, but I, I don't hold too much confidence in those things. I think for me, it's much better to find out what the original idea that inspired you is and then put your own twist on it and present it in a different fashion. The best way to think about this, the best synthesization I've seen of this idea is Minecraft, right? Minecraft took the idea of a pixelated first-person perspective, not unlike Doom or Wolfenstein, and they twisted that and changed that and made it into something new. So when you're designing toys and you are borrowing heavily, it's best to think of that analogy and find a new way to kind of uh, put it out there into the world with your own fingerprint on it. I personally have never had a point where I wanted to stop and pull back an homage idea because again, my inspirations are sort of buried under several layers and several different changes that don't reflect the original form, which I think is one, a safer way to operate, but two, it's also much more fulfilling for me because I'm doing something different. I'm not just repeating the same notes. I'm not just playing a cover song. I'm composing a new tune. I suppose the cliff's edge would be having a figure. I would say going over the edge would be having a figure that has the same color scheme as a character and having the same name and utilizing the same trademark. Like that is stuff that is absolutely going to get you in trouble. Uh, if you look at the world of third-party Transformer toys, they are arguably over the ledge, but they don't utilize the same names. They come up with creative names that sort of remind you of that original character, but don't blatantly reuse that combination of letters, right? So 
there's a bunch of good examples out there. The final point I'll make is uh, toy making requires a lot of energy and you're burning a lot of calories. And if I'm going to spend that time and I'm going to expend that energy, why would I take somebody else's IP and do something that pushes their brand forward or elevates their brand? It doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, I want my life energy going into advancing my career, my work, my characters, my stories. I don't want to sort of expel that energy, pulling things out of the past and bringing them up onto a pedestal. It doesn't make any sense. Those things are in the past for a reason. I want to move forward with new ideas, tell new stories. Next question from Eric Valverde. Tell me more about the cherubium pack you dyed. What was your recipe and how is it holding up to usage so far? Uh, so on the Patreon app, under the lens stories, I've shared some dyeing I've been doing. I got the recipe from Nikki. It is a closely guarded secret. Can't share it with you, sorry. But I'm very happy with the results. I do think we are going to do some sort of uh, lucky bags with some dyed figures coming soon. Now, uh, the downside to dyed is that there can be color leaching. The pigments can sort of, uh, you know, make their way onto base plastic if they're sitting on top of something. So these are more work of art. They're less action figures. But I'm very happy with the results. I got some new dye colors coming right away. And I think in the near future, I'm going to put together a little blind bag collection of these very beautiful artifacts. I think everybody's going to like them. Next question from Charlie Pope. Did you back the United States Space Force figures? If so, what are your thoughts? I think there are quality figures, great sculpts, and paint for the heads. I'm not sure I'd back from that company again, but I enjoy the figures. P.S. The heads fit on Fortnite figures pretty good. Uh, I did back this. Um... I have not met, but I've had the pleasure of speaking with Chris uh, a couple times. Chris is a very well-regarded fixer in the toy world. Um, he speaks Mandarin, as I understand, and has been very crucial in helping people uh, with errors that happen over in China. And uh, so I like Chris's work quite a bit. Um, I found myself actually playing with these quite a lot like uh, initially when they arrived you know I'm in a much different headspace than sort of super articulated three and three quarter inch figures but I had a lot of fun with them I like the Arnold head I like the dome helmets uh, you know it's just a cool sort of fun thing the biggest downside here is that the Eagle Force body is now at this point I think five years old right and five years ago this would have been a cutting-edge body but at this point uh, it is not. And I'm not besmirching their efforts. I think those guys have done a good job. But uh, to me, it's like, let's let's see something new. It's been five years. Every year in Knights of the Slice, I introduce how many new body types, right? Different silhouettes, big guys, skinny guys. Uh, that's what I like to see in a toy line. And that's where I sort of focus my efforts and getting a lot of different varied body types and sizes. I, I just think that makes for a lot more color and a lot more interesting play patterns. I would also say, while we're talking about homages, um, man, 
wouldn't it have been great to see some Starcom homages on this body after I just spent so long talking shit on homages? Um, you know, I think that like this is a, a very good body that Starcom could work well on. So, um, you know, they're my thoughts. I recommend the figures. I think they're they're pretty damn good. They're a lot of fun. I would like to see what's next for that body. I, I think they need to up the game in some respects. And, and I will be there ready to back when that happens. Matthew Connolly writes, Tell us a tale of an epic East Coast snowball fight or a time of incredible sledding. Did it end in frozen tears or someone's head be ringing? Well, you know, not a winter went by in my childhood where there wasn't sledding or snowball fights. Um, I remember building, sort of hollowing out the big snowdrifts and kind of having a Hoth-like rebel fortress, which was always a lot of fun. I also remember filming a movie by myself in my backyard called Cliffhanger 2. And uh, it was just a bunch of shots of me like you know, with an exaggerated angle where you couldn't see the ground, like, you know, trying to wrestle my way up a a cliff face. I also, uh, the premise of Cliffhanger 2 was that there was a, a, a Florida oranges box stuffed with plutonium that my character had to recover from the side of a mountain. And so I took green food dye and made some snowballs and dyed them green, and that was the plutonium, and I put them in this Florida oranges box and uh, you know obviously uh, did not win an Emmy for that one and it, it was uh, it was really quite shocking Lucas Ward I dream of another thousand toys pizza synth cyber mama from the new synth would be very cool as pointed out below by Eric Valverde uh, Destazopod 276 at the 43 minute 25 second mark I answer a question very similar to this uh, there will not be, unfortunately, any new Thousand Toy Pizza Synth figures. Next up, Gordon McKinnon Hall. I really like the new Dagger Squad song. Do you write your lyrics beforehand or treat them like your other instruments and improvise as you go? Uh, there is no pre-planning whatsoever. There are no lyrics written down. It is 100% off the top of my head uh, from deep in my soul, the lyrics that I spew out. And... Uh, That makes it very difficult for trying to recreate a song because I have no idea what I was saying in the moment. Uh, Frank Black and the the Pixies did this a lot. It was just sort of stream of consciousness lyrics, and I always liked that. Um, As we're going to touch on a little later in this this Dazapod, I don't really like doing a lot of pre-planning. I don't like things that require a lot of work ahead of time. I like to be spontaneous, and I want my art to be immediate, right? I don't want to refine it. I don't want to filter it. Uh, I feel so much is lost between the thought firing in my brain and my hand being able to articulate that idea that I don't want to have any more loss on top of that. So uh, the less planning I do for things, the, the happier I am with the end result. Now obviously my main bread and butter toy design requires tons and tons of pre planning and pre thought. And uh, I think that's why every other pursuit I do, I want to be very immediate, very rough, very dirty, and just get it out there as close to its second of inception as possible. Next question from Jeremy Price. You mentioned the steel tools have a finite amount of use in them. Are any of the figure steel tools coming close to an end? 
and will you have a ceremonious last run to any of them? So there's a finite end to steel tools in so much as they are left in disrepair. The tools that we run are tweaked all the time. They're they're constantly being maintained and buffed and, you know, um, sort of the, the normal amount of maintenance and upkeep is happening on a regular schedule. So I will probably get decades out of these. Let's hope. Um, you know, there are still some GI Joe tools that are being run by Hasbro. I, I don't know if they've had to recreate these tools over time, but I think some portion of their tooling archive is, uh, you know, still available to them. So with maintenance, they can last about as long as steel lasts, right? Speaking of ceremonious last runs of anything, uh, for a very different reason, the Bloodletter Capsule V2 is our last capsule. Um, you know, capsules have never been something that's caught fire. This is the last unreleased style to date. So, uh, I think it's a really great send-off. I love the color. Uh, I think you guys will be very happy to get this in hand. But that is the ceremonious last stand of the capsules. I hope you guys enjoy it quite a bit. Uh, I do not see a future where these come back. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what the conditions would have to be for that to happen, but the sales for capsules have never manifested in a way that necessitates their continuation beyond uh, what we've done, which, you know, I think are really great styles as it is. Next up from Rams is Wilson. Any plans for Vector Jump Nights this year? Sorry, I'm out of the loop. By the way, welcome back to Patreon, Ramses. Always good to see you. Um, I would love to do a Vector Jump this year. I don't have any planned at this point, but uh, that could change as the months progress. I do like me some Vector Jump. Um, I know people are itching for another one, so I guess I just gotta find the right one and do it. But thank you for reminding me. Next up is our good friend Ian Amling. Question, with freeware like Blender available now and an almost limitless supply of add-ons that make 3D assets look cell shaded or appear as if made out of clay, do you see a crossover where the independent toy maker can cross-platform their product and have short stories that promote their figures with actual 3D assets they make and produce or reverse where the physical sculpted uh, sorry, where the physical sculpture is scanned and brought into the program and subsequently animated. Side note, you can do these scans from your phone now. Hashtag mind blown. Um, all of this is very promising, right? So I, I think I can lend a little bit of expertise here because I did go to school for animation and I did take several 3D animation classes. Um, also, as added benefit, I have taken in-game assets from some IP that is very well known and then utilize those for figural things like Mega Merge. And I can tell you that right now these are two separate things. Um, designing for toys is much different than designing for 3D animation. Uh, there's a, a myriad of things that come into play, but basically, as I'm sure most of you people are familiar, you need an amateur or an underwire 
that is kind of telling the 3D body what to do and how to move and what restrictions the joints have, things like that. Um, that is not readily, that information is not there in a 3D sculptural piece. In fact, the considerations for a 3D sculptural piece are much different. Uh, you know, your main considerations are hiding the articulation, making sure that there's enough um, sort of meat where the articulation cuts are so that there's not breakage, there's not warpage. Uh, it is sort of two different schools of thoughts and disciplines um, that can sometimes run counter to each other. What I did find at the end of the day after uh, utilizing 3D game assets for uh, Dark Souls and um, for Fallout is that in many respects we were better off starting from scratch building those characters as toys rather than utilizing the in-game assets. There was so much uh, incompatibility with the 3D information that it, uh, it, it was like recreating the, the wheel in an unnecessary fashion. Now that's not to say that technology can't bridge that gap, but it is a, it is a, a very big divide where we stand today. Um, you would essentially need an asset that is simultaneously designed for toys as well as animation or as an in-game asset. And those are very desperate ideas where we stand right now. I'm now remembering I had a uh, licensing client that was building a style guide and they were insistent that they were going to provide the very best amount of assets to potential licensees. They were going to give them these golden files that were from the game, but also were perfect for utilizing as toys and uh, 3D objects. And despite <laughs> the reservations I, you know, laid out for them, they still proceeded with this. And then sure enough, every licensee that got this asset package could not utilize the 3D in-game files for um, their sculptural needs. But I am an optimist. I do think that um, much like how MMA came on the scene and it forced fighters to not stick to one discipline, you know, if like a modern day UFC fighter is head and shoulders going to be better than anybody fighting in any discipline in the 80s because people tended to stick with one discipline and become the master of that. The modern day fighter has to be, they have to have a good ground game, they have to be able to box, they have to, you know, they gotta know jujitsu. like, you have to be sort of varied in your fields of study. So I do think, as an optimist, that ultimately uh, 3D designers are going to have to incorporate both these ideas and learn how to sort of design for both these things simultaneously. And maybe it's just there are two versions of the same character. One is for 3D sculptural, one is for animation. And or technology may, as I said, bridge that gap. There may be sort of AI application here where uh, it can deduce what changes would need to be made to a structure for either of those sort of avenues. So it's a very interesting idea. Um, 
I do think we're not there today. I would love to see that happen. I would love to see that manifest because obviously a person like me could really utilize the storytelling potential there. But this actually uh, ignites another thought I've been having that leads into this, right? When we talk about disciplines and expertise and things like that. And I think this is a good uh, idea to share with people because amongst our audience, we have a lot of different aspiring toy makers. We have toy makers that have taken the first steps into making resin figures. We have a, a few that have actually started manufacturing in China. So we have a good varied level of talent in this pool of ours. So I think that this is a good lesson to share here. If you have the aspirations to be an independent toy designer, um, that is not actually what you are deciding. That is not the discipline you're going into, okay? If that is your choice and that is the direction you want to move, you need to reconcile with yourself that you are in the e-commerce business. And that is a incredibly unsexy, <laughs> incredibly tedious, detail-oriented business to be in. So think about this as you embark upon your career. You want to understand logistics. You want to be very good at spreadsheets. You need to be meticulous in your planning. You need to understand the different freight carriers and what discounts they give and what their requirements are. Uh, you have to be familiar with customs and how uh, those are applied to different countries. You have to understand photography. You have to understand how to write copy. You have to tie all that together to have a pleasant user experience that's going to compel people to buy your product. You got to think about your, your marketing and your messaging and what platforms you're active on. So if this is a serious pursuit for you and you want to be the next Healy Maid or Suck Lord or whatever the case may be, you're actually entering into e-commerce and logistics. And I, if that is an unappealing ideal to you, this might not be the avenue you want to go down. But uh, it becomes a more and more crucial thing, especially when you have some success as you build your database of clients, as you ship more and more stuff, as you move into you know, a bigger volume of work, which hopefully will happen for you. Um, all this stuff becomes a bigger part of the demand of the work that goes into this pursuit. So bear that in mind. Uh, I, it is incredibly tricky. It is 80 to 90% of what I do every day. And as I said before, it is incredibly unsexy. Next question from John Emmett. If you're doing live music for your brand as well as your personal entertainment, would you ever do live storytelling, something akin to a traditional radio drama like The Shadow with music and sound effects, or even just a simple script reading it from a few different actors? So I believe in our last Dostazapod, Gavin Rader asked a similar question about sort of radio plays or uh, serializations of Turbo Atoll and some of the graphic comics. Um, my answer to him is, my, is the same answer to you. I love this idea. I would love to see it. Who is going to do the work of it, right? Because I, I can't. Um, scripted stuff, stuff that requires planning, uh, is incompatible with my current schedule of, you know, stuffing envelopes every single day. So 
I would love to see it. I actually don't think I'm the right person uh, for a lot of that equation. Uh, I don't love the sound of my voice. I stutter a lot and, you know, I, I, it's been a long time since I've had a media training class, let's say. So there are better people uh, who could kind of execute an idea like those things. But uh, right now, the biggest challenge, the biggest hurdle is going to be just not having the time or bandwidth to look at something like that. Continuing on with Gabe Tovar, did you ever collect any Lego Bionicle? I used to have a bunch of these growing up, and to be honest, I miss them. It's a shame Lego really doesn't bother with the brand anymore, leaving it dead in the water. The engineering and playability felt ahead of its time and very unique, especially when it came to its lore and world building. Uh, I did not. When Bionicle came out, I was 21 years old, which meant I could buy alcohol. Uh, I was working full-time, I think working two jobs, and about to uh, start transitioning into going to animation school. Uh, I was the point furthest from interested in uh, Lego and most toys. Uh, I also was selling a lot of my collection just to pay my rent. Uh, I lived on my own, had my own apartment, had roommates, that sort of thing. Uh, but I did always admire them. And I think I, I, think I got a Bionicle... Uh, at some point for Christmas or something like that. I also know one time I walked into like a, uh, you know, a kid's store and I saw the mask packs that they had and that there were gold chase uh, masks. And I really liked that. I bought a couple of those spare mask packs. Uh, what I did have was the precursor to Bionicle Slizers or Throwbots, I think they were called. I had a few of those. I think, again, those were... Uh, you know, gifted to me on some occasion. And I like those a lot. Uh, I agree with you. I think, you know, it's a pretty fantastic line. I was just a little too old for it at the time, but I know people really love the lore and the games. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's probably due for a relaunch anytime. Next question from Brent Lawson. Do you have a little history on the design of the Device Ninja? Um, you know, I don't have really strong recollections of that time period. This would have been our, what, fourth figure? Classic Knight, Vector Jump, Old Knight, Device Ninja? Does that sound about right? Um, the basic premise to me was a can't-lose scenario, a robotic ninja. Uh, obviously, you can trace early arcade and 16-bit games uh, as the, mag the major influence for that. This was a, a sort of inspiration that both Dowdy and I were tied very closely on. Um, even going back to, you know, Ninja Gaiden and the, the sort of, uh, beautiful cutscenes that that game had, although Ryu was not, uh, unfortunately, part robot. Very, uh, very tragic. The robotic arms themselves were actually, uh, repurposed from a very early accessory that I wanted to go with the Classic Knight. Uh, the Classic Knight was supposed to have one large um, arm cannon, essentially, that looked not unlike how the Device Ninja arms look now, sort of patchworked and biomechanical, um, you know, with a sinister cannon at the end of it. So that was actually rehashed from the original Classic Knight as a 
sort of accessory that, that got nixed and, and didn't end up going into that figure. I think if I'm not mistaken, some of the heads were actually reused from an earlier head pack I had Ant Suck uh, sculpt for me. I, I used to just cut Ant Suck's checks to just make as many heads as he wanted for Knights of the Slice, and I would just pay him, and he could do whatever he wanted. And uh, I think one or two of the Device Ninja heads actually came from that and predated the idea to do an entire figure based on that. Then in terms of the sculpting and, and that process, we just basically cut Erwin Papa loose. We gave him the basic premise. We said, you know, this is a ninja robot. You do your thing. And uh, there wasn't a ton of guidance or oversight or corrections. We just kind of, you know, let him bring this baby to life. And, you know, he did an amazing job. Hopping over to Facebook for some questions there. PK, mates, have you hidden any clues into toys, stories, music, or art that haven't been found yet? Uh, yes, absolutely. And I I would gather that um, all of the subliminal things in my work will not be found uh, while I'm still on this earth and may not be found ever. Uh, I'm playing the long game when it comes to creative expression. And uh, I would say, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, Following Rob Ager may provide some insights into how uh, stories can tell, can can sort of share truths on multiple levels. And his videos, which I've been watching for probably a decade, have inspired me. Uh, it's helped me understand how Kubrick bakes in different themes into different layers of his work. And uh, I've tried to apply that to all my, contempo uh, my contemporary projects. Next up from Keith Joy, will we see official releases of 34 and Double Down from the MoFos in the future? Uh, that's a good question for Mark Mosman. I can tell you that there is more MoFos on the way this year, and I think they're the best styles yet. So I'm very excited to see that. It's gonna be a lot of fun. Next question from Jason Rushlow. What is your favorite Super 7 licensing announcement so far? Uh, I gotta tell ya, it's McBain. Easy. That's an easy one. Following up with that, Tim Wilkins, I don't recall seeing any visuals of Jessica. Will she ever make an appearance in illustration or figure form? Of course, to both. Uh, for those who haven't been following along with the, the prose or the story pieces of Knights of the Slice, Jessica is, uh, is Vaughn's ex-wife. And recently, Rex has been working with her once again. Back in the days when it was just Rex and Vaughn out on a case, Jessica would provide uh, backup support that should be available over earpiece and would handle all the logistics of their missions that they were doing. When Jessica and Vaughn started to hit troubled waters, that dynamic trio was fractured for sure. And now that Rex is working under the uh, command of General Beowulf. Uh, Jessica is back in his life as she was uh, smartly scooped up by General Beowulf uh, to sort of run logistics on missions the way she used to for Rex and Vaughn. Um, all of this, obviously, is going to lead to a very complicated reunion, if it ever happens, for these three folks. But yes, Jessica is on my short list to uh, make appearances in both illustration and in figure form. 
Final question here from Russ Toys. You find a magical lamp and a public domain genie emerges. It's like regular Robin Williams genie, but because he's public domain genie, he's more specific. You get to pick a single intellectual property uh, and reality will shift and it will become public domain. You will be the only person who is aware of this chain and the magical being promises you that the current owners and employees supporting the IP will all be given riches and happiness in life that exceed their current situation so no harm will be done to anyone. With the catch being that you can't pick the IP owned by you or that somebody... Yeah, okay, it's a very, very long, very funny question. Uh, too long didn't read. Which IP do you choose to gift to the world? Uh, I would pick Mickey Mouse. And I would do so because Disney has spent so much time and money lobbying and rewriting copyright in the United States to bolster their position and their ownership of their library. So it seems only fair to me that the appropriate recompense for that would be to take their prize and joy, their mascot, and make him free to the world. Which might be happening, uh, if we followed the letter of the law, it, it probably would be happening soon anyway, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they managed to gain an exception as they have in the past for many of the properties that should be, uh, you know, public domain, but they have sort of successfully uh, circumvented the law and, and uh, you know, gone around things. So that would be, I think, some just poetry. Okay, just to uh, anticipate the questions I'm going to get next week about Book of Boba Fett. Did I watch it? Do I have an opinion? Etc. Etc. Uh, yes, I did watch Book of Boba Fett. I actually was incredibly bored by the beginning of it and uh, didn't go back to it. Only on the, the assistance of Matt Doughty did I go back and watch all of it. And... Uh, I will say, of course, that episodes four and five, the Mandalorian episodes, are fantastic. And um, probably, you know, absolutely on par with the Mandalorian series. And some of the best Star Wars storytelling so far. However, they clearly did not have a sort of well-thought-out idea for the rest of the series. Um, it's hard for me to distill... Uh, what is what's sort of such a miss about Book of Boba Fett but I think it comes down to this uh, just the core of the character and their understanding of him and what his purpose is in life right that none of those questions were sort of answered so uh, to sort of illustrate my point here uh, Boba Fett is a bounty hunter right that is what we know of him Based on, let's just go off of like what we know of him in the original trilogy. He's a bounty hunter, so that is a sort of freelance contract uh, killer or contract, you know, police officer, let's say. Now, we've seen bounty hunters portrayed in media quite a bit. In fact, there's, uh, you know, one of the best animes in the world, Cowboy Bebop, is about three bounty hunters. And I think that their lives are... Uh, much closer to what the life of a bounty hunter would be, right? Just sort of popping from port to port, uh, 
you know, in the case of the Cowboy Bebop crew, struggling to pay their bills, uh, always looking for the next big heist, or the next big uh, bounty, rather. Um, and that's kind of like, you know, a stylized, but a relatively realistic portrayal of what a bounty hunter does. So what sort of uh, attributes can we attribute to that profession? Well, you're sort of a lone wolf. You might work with other people, but you kind of value your independence, your freedom, the need to travel. Uh, clearly, you don't like having a boss. And um, you don't really, you know, I think it's true of all the Cowboy Bebop crew. They want as little complications as possible, right? I think that's pretty unified in... Uh, their occupation. So in Book of Boba Fett, Boba Fett is now a crime boss for the reason of unclear. There's, I do not understand the motivation for somebody wanting to be a bounty hunter and then to become a crime boss, but to make all moralistic choices in being a crime boss that don't really uh, befit somebody who's in the business of crime. Which is to say, you know, my ultimate feeling is that this is just bones on which to lay two very good Mandalorian episodes without the burden of having to do an entire season of Mandalorian. Which, I'm sure, contractually, the actors in Mandalorian were off doing other stuff. They probably were not available to do an entire new season. But, if you have this slightly related TV series where you can get... Pedro Pascal for maybe a week and shoot uh, all his scenes, do a lot of stuff with his stunt double, and then kind of pack it into this uh, structure of the Book of Boba Fett, well then you can kind of continue on your flagship, give people a little bit of crumbs before you come back for an entire Mandalorian series. Now, I've seen this sort of filler philosophy in Hollywood quite a bit, where they're just trying to stretch out the IP to have a year-round uh, sort of newness and it almost never works it's just not you know good stories take time to sort of cultivate are there interesting cool things to look at in Boba Fett sure there's there's very you know there's some pretty compelling scenes and there's some visual stuff uh, happening with giant creatures that's fun uh, there's also some of the most cringiest stuff that, since, you know, the prequels. Like, the the biker gang is just laughably bad. I'm not talking about the, the sort of, uh, the, you know, the uh, grotesque monster biker gang. I'm talking about the cybernetic teenager stuff. This is just uh, levels beyond anything George Lucas could come up with to embarrass himself. And the fact that there's no personality, there's no... You know, there's no will, there's no desire, and I don't even know the names of any of the teenage cybernetic biker games. Uh, it just shows you what an empty vessel they were to begin with. None of that stuff was sort of built out, and there was no interest in building that stuff out. So, look, if you enjoyed Book of Boba Fett, that's absolutely fine. I'm not the arbiter of taste by any means. Uh, to me, it's, you know, again, it's it was an excuse to hang sort of a mini-season of Mandalorian on something. Uh, I don't think there was a greater impulse beyond that. Um, your mileage may vary, you know, and uh, just post a comment if you feel strongly otherwise. 
So there you have it. Uh, if it was up to me to make a recommendation to watch it or not, I would just say watch the Mandalorian episodes, which I think are episodes 4 and 5 or 5 and 6. Uh, and you can forget everything else. I, I don't think there's, uh, there's not a lot of meat on that bone. Now with that out of the way, I leave you with the immortal words. Be tapped. <laughs>